the truth is, as long as there is a pound of coal left in the ground not to burn or a barrel of oil left in the ground not to drill and burn, we can still make things better. So we're fighting at this point to limit the damage. One has to be honest about that, right? And it's a little hard to inspire people with the battle cry, limit the damage. I've sort of written in the past, it's not exactly to the Bastille as a battle cry, but that's where we are. And people just really need to understand they actually can still make a difference. We can speed this up. And to the degree we do, we are benefiting ourselves and future generations. So my message for people is pretty simple. Don't despair. Throw yourself at this problem with what time you have available. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi, an activist and cause marketer who's passionate about building a regenerative future, one in which we can all be proud to live. Every week, I invite you to care more about key issues that surround all of us, to dive deeply into topics so that we can learn together, so that we can grow, so that we can surmount challenges and change for the better. To ensure we can both create community and push for that positive change, I'd like to invite you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to share it. If you have a topic that you would like to see featured or have a guest in mind that you think would make a great contributor to this content, please always reach out to me. You can send me an email note to hello at caremorebebetter.com. You can even leave me a voicemail directly on the site by simply clicking that microphone icon in the bottom right-hand corner. I really do want to hear from you, and I have even featured from time to time that content on this podcast. Today, we are going to cover an audacious topic as we cover seven practical steps to save our planet with Justin Gillis. He is the co-author of The Big Fix, a new book that will be out September 20th, 2022. Justin Gillis is an award-winning journalist with four decades of experience explaining complex issues and making that digestible in simple language for major daily newspapers, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Miami Herald. As the lead reporter on climate science at the Times for nearly a decade, he won the John B. Oaks Award for Distinguished Environmental Journalism for a series of front-page articles exploring the basics of the climate crisis. A graduate of the University of Georgia, he is currently a fellow at the Harvard University Center for the Environment. Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Corinna. Good to be here. Yeah, it's so good to have you here. Isn't that often that you get to connect on such an audacious, clearly laid out plan to save our planet? And I want to quote here something that I saw in the liner notes for your book. And this is from Al Gore about this work. He says, full of illustrative stories and compelling evidence, the big fix outlines an ambitious yet feasible guide for how America can lead the global solution to the climate crisis. Now, those are his words, but I have to say, ultimately, this is something that got me fired up because I feel like, especially in recent past, we haven't been leading the charge the same way we had been. So let's start from there. What are these seven areas that we can personally affect to change positively and save our home? 
Sure. In the interest of time, I'll run through them pretty quickly. And when I do so, it's going to sound to the audience like, well, there's not much I can do about that and not much I can do about the other one either. But that's wrong. And then maybe we can circle back and discuss some of these examples and what people actually can do. Step number one in our sort of plan to make a difference on climate change is we need to clean up the electric grid. And the reason we need to do that is that the electric grid becomes the basis for supplying a lot of other energy services that are now supplied by burning things. So if we have a clean grid, for example, then we get more bang for the buck running electric cars on that grid. So we need to clean up the grid. Second thing we need to do is clean up transportation. I just mentioned electric cars. Probably a lot of your listeners are already at least curious about electric cars, which are a way to cut emissions. There are lots of other things we need to do to clean up the transportation system. We need to clean up our buildings. That means we need to get gas out of them. Everybody out there who has a gas stove or a gas furnace needs to be thinking about, when am I going to get rid of this thing? And what am I going to switch to? The magic technology there is called heat pumps. And we all need to be making plans to switch over. We need to clean up our industry, things like steel, cement, chemicals. Those are big sources of emissions. We need to build better cities. Historically in America, we've had this building pattern of kind of suburbanization that's very costly in terms of emissions, in terms of land, in terms of damaging wildlife and so forth. And there's a big political move now to sort of try to reverse that. And we all need to throw our support to that movement. We need to clean up our food supply and the way we use land. We need an agriculture that's more conscious of the environment and more conscious of climate. And consumers have a say in that, of course, in what they buy. And then the seventh part of this plan is what we call Invent the Future, By that, we mean that we need public support for investments designed to create the technologies that we don't yet have, but will need in the next 20 to 30 years to solve the climate crisis. So we've got what we need to get sort of well over halfway there already, but we need more. And so we're going to have to invest as a country in inventing those things. And so what Hal and I have done, Hal Harvey, my co-author in this book, is sort of lay out ways that the public can help with all seven of those big tasks. Well, audacious on all fronts. I personally have been making those strides to clean up my electricity. But as many here in California will understand, it's not always our choice, even with something like solar panels installed on your roof. I'm still connected to the grid and PG&E will shut the power off for sometimes days at a time because of fire hazard conditions, if it's too windy and dry at the same time, because our grid has not yet gone underground and can spark fires in dry forests. And so it feels like it's taking too long, so to speak. So I wonder what your thoughts are about how we can get there more quickly. And if there's anything that we can personally do, or even through legislation to help that move forward. Every bit of this is taking too long. There's no question about it. That, in fact, is the heart of the problem, is that it's all taking too long. And the way to speed it up is through public pressure. The fact of the matter is we have not had in the United States any particularly strong political demand on climate change up until very recently. I mean, we went for decades and decades with the climate scientists warning us about how serious this problem was and 
the political response was almost nothing, right? Except in a handful of places. I mean, California was out early, a few other states, but really on a national level, not very much at all. And so now we're in an emergency where, as you say, we bad things are starting to happen. We're all starting to see it with our own eyes. Entire towns are burning down in California. Massive floods are disrupting people's lives. So we truly are in a crisis here. What we can do now as citizens is ramp up this political demand and or set of demands, I should say. That has started. The 2020 election was the first election in which people managed to force any presidential candidate to take this problem seriously and make promises related to it. The very first one. And so we do have a politics of climate change. We do have a movement, especially a youth movement, a young people movement, but we need more. And that means citizens getting in the faces of their elected representatives and making demands. And there are all sorts of ways to do this. And I'm sure we're going to talk about some of those, but it's true, not just in Washington. I mean, this isn't just, you know, write your congressman is the, and then you're done is the answer. A huge amount of what needs to be done is at the state level and the local level. So the opportunities for people to intervene are often as close as their city hall or their local school board. And this is what we need, basically, is just much more of a citizen demand. I think one of the things that is very hard for people is that it may already feel like it's too late. And so they look at the whole of the enormity of the problem that is climate change and just feel like, well, what can I do? And so even just sending an email or approaching your Congress people from a lobbyist perspective may seem like it's just, first of all, not enough and perhaps a little too late in the game. So what would you say to those people that might feel like the cards are already stacked against us? It is true that we've already bought ourselves a lot of damage with the emissions level that we're at right now. And of course, there's a huge amount of inertia in the system as well, right? So if we ramp up our political demands and ramp up our policies, it's still going to be decades before we get fossil fuels completely out of the economy. There's just no way around that. And so I kind of understand when people feel a little bit hopeless about this problem, but that's If you do that, you're sort of falling for the tricks of the fossil fuel companies in a way. They want us to feel disempowered. They want us to feel hopeless about this situation because they want to keep making money selling fossil fuels. The truth is, as long as there is a pound of coal left in the ground not to burn or a barrel of oil left in the ground not to drill and burn, we can still make things better. So we're fighting at this point to limit the damage. One has to be honest about that, right? And it's a little hard to inspire people with the battle cry, limit the damage. I've sort of written in the past, it's not exactly to the Bastille as a battle cry, but that's where we are. And people just really need to understand they actually can still make a difference. We can speed this up. And to the degree we do, we are benefiting ourselves and future generations. So my message for people is pretty simple. Don't despair. Throw yourself at this problem with what time you have available. In your opinion, what do you think are the most effective ways to get involved at this particular time? Let me give you some examples of things that people don't think about. One is every parent in America, just about every parent in America, puts their kid on a school bus every morning to go to school. That school bus burns dirty diesel fuel which is, of course, making the climate problem worse. 
In addition, on a hot day, the kids are going to roll down the windows and you get dirty diesel fumes blowing into the faces of these young people in a country where we already have a problem with asthma and that problem is getting worse. I don't understand why every parent in America is not marching down to the local school board and saying, excuse me, when are you going to change these out for clean buses? Because clean buses are now available. They are relatively new. They are still expensive, but the cost is falling. If you look at the total lifetime operating cost of these electric buses, it's already pretty good compared to fossil burning buses. So this is something parents aren't thinking about, right? And school boards listen to parents. If a few parents went down and said, when are you going to make a plan on cleaning up the buses? I think they'd get an audience. And we know this is true because this is already starting to happen around the country. It's happened in a few places. A few school boards have made big, important commitments already. We need more people involved, more people to do that. Another example is a lot of people don't realize that the electricity system in their state is completely controlled by a government agency. Every state has one. It's usually called a public utilities commission or a public service commission in a few states. And these are sort of court-like bodies that usually operate in the state capital. They tell the power companies what they can build, how fast they can build it, what they can charge for it. They're in complete control of the whole power system. By law, these boards have to listen to the public. Many people don't even know they exist, right? That you flip a switch and your electricity comes on and you sort of never think about where it comes from or who's in charge. But there are people in charge of it, and they're required to listen to you. And so we've seen examples already where the public has made a lot of difference by going down to either testifying in favor of clean energy at these boards. Now you could even do that. You don't have to leave your house. You could do that over a webcam and make a virtual appearance. You can put comments in the record of these boards as they consider what their electric companies ought to be required to do. So that's another way. And there are just a bunch of examples like this where there are these, what we call in the book, secret levers that people can pull. And they're secret only in the sense that most people don't know about them, right? They're not state secrets or anything like that. But there's just a ton of these sort of levers where a little bit of democratic action can make a difference. And that's what we're asking people to do. Well, I think that's great advice. Now, I think about the political economy, the situation that we're in now. And I know that this is a term you talk about in the book, too. So can you describe for our audience what a political economy is and how we can ultimately leverage its power? This is kind of an old term that fell out of favor. It used to be that economists understood that politics heavily influenced economic possibilities. So in a country, for example, your political Options are constrained and influenced very heavily by what sort of laws are on the books. Have you got a government that's competent and willing to enforce private contracts, for example? What's your country doing in terms of trade agreements with other countries? Does it have high barriers to trade or does it have low barriers to trade? That's the term political economy. And it's unfortunate that it fell out of use and economists went off down this rabbit hole of thinking we're all sort of rational actors making decisions in a pure free market, which is, of course, ludicrous. We like this term political economy because we think it signals something important to people about the energy transition. Namely, 
the government, somewhat unbeknownst to the average citizen, has this huge role in what our economic possibilities are. So let me give you one example there. You may live in a state where there's lots and lots of electric cars on the market, and you kind of have your choice of 25 or 30 models at this point. There are some other states where there are virtually no electric cars on the market, and getting your hands on one is extremely difficult. What's the difference? The difference is whether, in the case of state A, the great likelihood is that that state government has followed the lead of California and adopted California's emission standards, which compels the car makers to put a wide range of clean cars onto the market in that state. Let's say Colorado, which did this within the last few years, and lo and behold, many, many more models of electric cars are becoming available in Colorado. In states that haven't done that, which is about half the states now that have not endorsed the California emission standards, they're getting the scraps of the electric car market because there's no law in the books that says you have to sell electric cars there at all. So that's a big difference that affects what you're able to buy that's being determined by the actions of your state government. And most people just don't know that that happens. And there's a bunch of other examples like this where the rules that are going on in the background really, really matter to what our options are. As somebody who has fallen into a fair number of rabbit holes as it relates to some climate solutions, including electric vehicles, I'm personally curious about what your perspective is on them as part of a solution for our transportation needs and reducing emissions, when at the same time we now have to mine for these rare earth minerals in some ecosystems that are somewhat questionable. For instance, potentially melting permafrost in Greenland to get at those rare precious metals or to drill into our seabeds, both of which can disrupt the ecologies of the space and have unintended consequences that we may not necessarily be able to determine at this time. So what are your thoughts about that as a whole? There's a hierarchy here where it's certainly the case that not driving is better than driving. And that's true whether we're talking about an electric car or a gasoline car. Riding a bicycle is better than driving. If you do drive, if you do have a car, driving fewer miles is better than driving more miles. Combining trips and not taking unnecessary trips is better. Buying an economical car, even if you buy a gasoline car, buying a Honda Civic is better than buying some big gas guzzler, right? And then electric cars are cleaner than any gasoline car out there. But the less overall driving, the better, the more we can persuade people or create the conditions to allow people to live in denser urban environments where they can walk to places or bicycle to places or where the grocery store is down on the corner. That's all to the good. And we've got an entire chapter in The Big Fix where we talk about sort of building better cities. With electric cars, imperfect solution to a very large problem, it's just a much better solution than the one we have now, which is fuel burning cars. And so it's absolutely true that we're going to need a huge amount of minerals. You know, electric cars are more intensive in terms of minerals, some types of minerals than gasoline cars are. They need lithium batteries and lithium is a difficult mineral to mine. It's dirty. The ponds that are used to dry the brine and produce lithium are dirty. So there's no question there's going to be environmental damage that comes from all this new sort of clean energy stuff. The difference, I think, is we are at least talking about that and aware of that early in the life cycle of these new technologies. Whereas in the past, 
we got way, 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 way down the hole of using fossil fuels before we became remotely conscious about the environmental consequences, right? And so we're going to need very careful recycling of the minerals that we're talking about, the metals and the minerals in these electric cars. We're going to need policies and incentives to make sure that we don't create whole new waste streams of disused, of I don't know, solar cells and so forth. But the time to think about that is now when these things are still young and let's get the laws and the policies in place. We need to do it as cleanly as possible. Well, I think you're getting back to the root of another question I wanted to explore with you, which is really the role of lifestyle changes that we can make. And when you talk about things like having a greener transport system and cities that are more mindfully arranged that would have better public transit, where even we get to a space where public transit is, let's say, destigmatized. I still think we have some class issues related to public transit in a bulk of America. It's not like everywhere is New York or San Francisco. And so really, I think that there's a component of these personal lifestyle changes that we can each choose to make. As a, for instance, an individual living in New York City, their carbon footprint, even though they're living in an environment that might be more toxic because of the fact that there's more pollution, but on a per capita per basis, each individual is producing less waste. And so I think it's important that we consider these things. I'd like to get purview into your view on how our lifestyle changes, like perhaps eating less meat, consuming less, keeping that vehicle longer, what role is that going to play in solving the climate problem? Our position is that all those things are important, and they're important for a couple of reasons. They're a gateway to thinking about the broader issues, and they're important in their own right, just as a direct contribution to reducing emissions. With that said, our position in the book is that lifestyle changes alone are not enough. I mean, a lot of people when they learn about this problem, they feel such despair and the problem feels so large. And many, many people say to themselves, I'm just one small person. What can I do about a problem this big? And the answer they come up with is, well, I do at least have control over you know, what I consume and what I buy. And the path that people find their way to is the sort of green consumer path, if you will. I'm going to try to be the greenest possible consumer I can be. I'm going to recycle diligently. I'm going to do all these things. That's all fine, but we are saying to people, really what we need you to do is we need you to be a green citizen. And we would even put being a green citizen ahead of being a green consumer because the systems we're talking about are enormous, right? We're talking about very, very large scale energy systems, food systems, water systems, all of which need to be reformed. And that's not going to happen without public policy. It's not going to happen without laws. It's not going to happen without new state rules and new city ordinances and all these things. So to make it happen, the public has to get behind that and push more assiduously than has been the case in the past. But still, the lifestyle stuff is important. And among the biggest levers that people have are what you eat. Incremental change is good there. Not everybody has to become a vegan to make a difference, although being a vegan is good if you can do it. But just cutting down on meat is good. If you're going to eat meat, then the least carbon intensive of the common meats is chicken. The most carbon intensive or the most emissions intensive is beef. And so to the extent you can sort of give up beef and move down the food chain to chicken, that's good. If you can go for meatless Mondays, that's good. So cutting your meat consumption is a good thing to do. 
Flying less is a good thing to do. Flying has a very large emissions footprint. Even cutting back one or two or three plane trips a year compared to your past patterns, you're making a real contribution there. Probably the third biggest thing that people can influence is sort of where they live and how much that forces them to drive. If you can live closer in and take care of some of your business, again, by walking or bicycling or an electric bike, which is a big booming thing now, then that's all to the good. So we do think the lifestyle stuff makes a difference, but green citizen is just as important, probably more important, honestly. Well, you've alluded to a couple of things that I think bear consideration from earlier episodes that I've hosted of this show. And one I will point our audience to is actually the interview with Jens Malbach, who created this new company called simply New Impact, and they're at newimpact.care. And they argue that we really need to take this new tri-sector innovation approach, which involves the public sector, the private sector, and then also, of course, the social sector. And that's people, that's all of us coming together. And you've alluded to this by talking about the need for government to have certain regulations and involvement in this. Where do you see us in the next month or two? I know that there's some prescient things happening right now in Congress that could change, but best case scenario, where do you see us in the next couple of months? And then let's say best case scenario. Yeah. As we're recording this, of course, there's a big climate deal being discussed in Washington. Let's hope it will have passed by the time your listeners are hearing this podcast. And assuming it does pass, let me back up. President Biden has made a commitment to the rest of the world that the United States will cut its emissions, its overall greenhouse gas emissions, by 50% from our peak level in 2005, cut by 50% by the year 2030, on our way to sort of trying to cut them out entirely by 2050. So that 50% cut by 2030 is the big American promise to the rest of the world. If the deal in Congress passes, as it's being discussed here in early August, that will get us probably about 40% of the way on those emissions cuts. And so we've still got a gap there. And Hal and I think, and the plan we outlined in the Big Fix is the public can help to fill that gap by pushing their local governments, their state governments, and for that matter, continuing to push Congress to go still further. So if we can pick up those 10 extra percentage points of cuts, then America will keep its promise to the rest of the world, will not be climate hypocrites, which we don't want to be. Climate hypocrites. Wow. I once conceived a book that I wanted to write called The Accidental Hypocrite. And I'm putting the idea out there because I may still write it, but I believe that many of us, even as well-intentioned as we are, often become accidentally hypocrites. We go out to get a cup of coffee, and while we might want to use our reusable cup, COVID hit, and we could no longer do that. And there are certain things that kind of span outside of our control in that way, too. One thing that you said a bit earlier that I want to touch back on relates to air travel. Personally, I used to travel at least twice a month and by air to multiple spots around the globe. And since COVID hit and a few lifestyle changes on my own space, I have now taken on average about three trips a year. But one of the things that Google did recently, and which you'll also see on some other air travel sites, they actually show the most carbon, let's say resource smart options. And so if you fly direct, you can see the difference between 
what it would take in the way of emissions to fly direct versus having to stop off in those two other cities on your way. So while you might save a buck, your impact on the environment is worse. And so I personally love that feature, and I think more people should be aware of it. My next big trip is going to be across the country from San Francisco to Philadelphia, and I made that conscious choice to travel direct. It means I'm getting up earlier than I want to and perhaps leaving a little later than I might want to on the way back, but ultimately it's something that I am more comfortable with. And then something that Paul Hawken in his work, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation, recommends is that we offset those flights with two to three times the carbon offset. And so that's a practice anyone in our audience could employ if they do actually go on air travel is look to ways to offset the carbon expense that you're putting out there. Sure, absolutely. If you just Google carbon offsetting, there's a million options out there. This is called the voluntary carbon market or the voluntary emissions market. And if your airline is giving you the emissions for a flight, you can offset those or offset a multiple of those if you want to. It's not dirt cheap. It's some tens of dollars, I think, to buy the offsets for a flight. But yes, it's definitely a possibility. So let's talk for a minute about some things that we can really do to push forward a little bit more quickly with this clean energy perspective. What are additional things that we might do to help, let's say, limit our usage and also push for change? So we need the public to think about and work on the problem of buildings. We have just millions upon millions of leaky, old, inefficient buildings in America. A lot of people who might be listening right now probably have a house they know is, or maybe a condo or something they know is not as efficient as it could be. There are two approaches here. One is sort of along the the lines of lifestyle change. You can fix your own place up. And what you need there is called an energy audit. And it will tell you what extent you're wasting energy and what the steps are that you could take to cut back on that. As people are doing that, they need to be thinking about and planning once the gas furnace goes out in this place, if you do have a gas furnace, are you really going to install another one and sort of lock in another 20 or 30 years of emissions from burning gas? Or are you going to look at this newfangled thing called a heat pump that can do the job instead and do it with clean electricity? Now, a lot of people going back 30 years have a bad taste about heat pumps, but that technology has improved radically just in the last decade. And so people need to take another look at it. So that's like the personal track. What can I do in my own personal life? At the same time, we need people supporting public policy relating to buildings. So a lot of towns are out of date on their building codes. So the building codes, the model building codes on which cities base their local building codes, keep getting better and better. They keep getting more and more buildings, keep getting more and more efficient if they're built to code. And so we need people demanding that their cities and counties stay up to date on the building codes, which is going to mean that the housing stock that's being constructed new in those places is cleaner and uses less energy than the houses of old. And then last but not least, some towns, especially in California, have adopted outright bans on new gas appliances and buildings. So in 55 or 60 cities in California now, you cannot build a new home 
and put a gas furnace in it or a gas stove. You have to go with a heat pump. You have to go with a very fancy, beautiful thing called an induction stove as your way to cook. And so we need people to support those policies and we need them to support those policies beyond California. It's happening in California. It's spread a little bit to other states, but we need a national movement to ban gas so that we stop digging the hole deeper. We're still putting up new buildings that have gas appliances in them. That needs to stop right now. So let's talk for a moment about what a heat pump is. This actually came up on a recent episode as well when I interviewed Zach Stein, who runs a company called The Carbon Collective, and they're ultimately working to use investments to make wiser choices and actually be green investing, which is something that's rising in the field of economics. But he talked about the fact that he made that choice to go ahead and install a heat pump and then would get the added benefit of essentially a temperature control in the way of air conditioning or something instead of air conditioning, so to speak. So how do heat pumps work and why are they so critical? Yeah, we quote a guy in our book, a guy named Nate Adams, who's an expert on this, on buildings, describing heat pumps as, he says, a heat pump is a bisexual air conditioner. It goes both ways. So that's a pithy way to remember what a heat pump is. A heat pump is simply a device that can move heat from one place to another. So everybody listening to this is already has a heat pump in their house, at least one, and that would be your refrigerator. So what your refrigerator does is it pulls heat out of the interior. And if you've ever stuck your hand behind there, you'll feel it's really warm behind the refrigerator because it's pumping that heat out the back. A home air conditioner is a heat pump. It's just a one-way heat pump. So it pulls hot air out of your house and pumps it outside. And the result is that your house cools down. A heat pump of the sort we're advocating is really just an air conditioner that's able to go in both directions. So it can cool your house in the summertime, but it can turn around and essentially reverse the flow so that it heats your house in the wintertime. And a lot of people find it hard to believe, but it's true that even when it's really cold outside, a heat pump can pull heat out of that cold air and push it inside your house so that it warms your house up. The same way, I mean, a refrigerator doesn't stop working just because it's already cool in the interior. It keeps pumping heat out, right, even though there's not a lot of heat in there. So this is the magic trick. Now, heat pumps use electricity to heat and cool, whereas air conditioners are using electricity to cool. Now you're going in both directions with electricity. Historically, electricity was more expensive than gas as a way to heat your house, But gas prices, natural gas prices are up so much these days that those economics are changing rapidly. In addition, when people install a heat pump, they really need to tighten up their house and seal all the air gaps and possibly put new insulation in. And when you do all that, you cut the cost of operating a heat pump. And so it's becoming a reasonable and economic option for people. And the price is coming down. The costs are falling. So we need to everybody have this in mind as possibly your next move when your gas furnace goes on the blank. Or when your air conditioner dies. Yes. And especially economic, if you need to replace them both at the same time, which sometimes people do, because you're pulling out two appliances and replacing them with one. And of course, it's economical in new construction, because instead of putting in two appliances, you're putting in only one that can do the job. So yes, absolutely. I can say this from an air conditioning perspective. We do have an air conditioning unit here, which makes the hottest 
parts of the year are more bearable, but it's very loud. So is a heat pump loud? Heat pumps are quieter. And in fact, they operate a little differently than what people are used to. You're used to a furnace coming on and blowing really hot air at you. And sometimes people like to stand under that vent and kind of warm up if they've been outside or whatever. Heat pumps operate for longer. They don't sort of cycle on and off as much. They tend to continue running. They run very quietly. You don't really hear the kind of noise that you tend to get with old style air conditioners or furnaces. And it's actually really lovely because in one that's set up properly, you have total control, not just of the temperature in a house, but of the humidity level as well. And so the most comfortable houses I've ever been in are houses with really well done heat pump installations where You simply don't notice the heating and cooling because you're in a completely comfortable environment at all times. Well, I recently saw a recommendation come through from the electric companies saying that we should put our new comfort setting in our homes to 78 degrees. And I will just say like in the summer months, instead of putting it at 72 to 75, actually putting it in at 78. This is part of a measure to get consumers to use less energy. Because at the same time that we have increased demand for doing things like, well, recharging our electric vehicles, we also have increased demand for an air conditioner in the summer months, and it can put too much stress on the grid at the same time. And so how would a heat pump compare to that? I'm really trying to help people understand the difference, because if it uses less electricity on a continual basis and keeps it more comfortable overall, then theoretically you'd be using less energy overall. Is that correct? It really does vary sort of house by house. It's true that a highly efficient modern heat pump can use less energy. It probably would use less energy than the air conditioner you're replacing, right? This is what people need to understand is you put one unit of electricity in and a heat pump gives you two or three units or even four units of heating or cooling for every unit of electricity you've put in. And I really do mean that. It means that the thing is 200 or 300 or 400% efficient, which is a little hard to believe. But the reason is that you're not making heat, you're moving heat around. And so you can do that with sort of less electricity. To your point about 78 degrees, that's a whole lot more comfortable if you're controlling the humidity, which again, a modern heat pump does. A lot of people are running air conditioning Not so much because the temperature is uncomfortable, but because it's clammy. If you don't, you get sweaty. And so good modern heat pump installation where you're controlling the humidity as an independent variable, it's a lot more tolerable to set your thermostat up at 77, 78 degrees, and you're using less energy that way. That case, just wear a t-shirt as opposed to the overcoat, right? At any rate. Well, thank you for the in-depth explanation. I think it's helpful for people to understand as they consider these new, potentially large expenses. I mean, I've seen tickets in the realm of around $10,000 to do a heat pump. I know it varies by your house, the square footage and all of that jazz, but it's something I'm considering as our next big step too. Yeah, it can be pricey. So much depends right on the condition of the house and can you reuse the old ducts or do you need new ducts? There's Full retrofits of some houses can even run thirty, forty thousand dollars in some cases, depending on exactly what you need. Now, one thing for people to pay attention to, though, is because it cuts energy use and moves us toward clean energy, a lot of the more progressive utilities are now 
offering pretty big incentives for people to switch out with heat pumps and for people to go all electric in their houses. So for instance, I don't know, Corinna, exactly where in California you live, but if you were in the territory of the Sacramento Municipal Utility District, which is that sort of big area around Sacramento, they'd be offering you up to $20,000 in incentives, maybe a little more now to make these changes. And in the bill that's under consideration in Washington right now, we hope it passes or will have passed by the time people hear this, there's pretty big tax breaks for people who make these kind of changes as well. So while the project can sound expensive, you may be in a position, if you look at all the state and local and utility incentives, people can sometimes offset half or more of the cost of these projects by using other people's money, essentially. Well, I love that. And I think that's part of what helped to drive more electric vehicles onto the road here. We had tax incentives of $10,000 rebate and then a little extra and being able to go into the diamond lane during non-commuter and commuter hours. So all of that helped, I think, for the adoption of electric vehicles. You see, we also saw that even PG&E here in our local environment gave a $500 rebate if you were installing an electric car vehicle charging point. And so we need to look at all of these things as we continue forward. And I'll be keeping an eye on that bill too. So hoping that it does pass and will have passed by the time this airs. Now, I'd like to invite you to share the best way to connect with you. Of course, we'll include links with our show notes, including the release of your book, which will be released September 20th, 2022. We can include links to it on both Amazon for pre-order and directly on Simon & Schuster's site. So whatever you prefer, I'd just love to know what you prefer. Sure. Yeah. The more links you can put up to different ways to buy the book. I know some people don't necessarily like buying from Amazon. So we kind of tend to list three or four different places that people can buy. And so that would be great. And then for connecting with me, I would urge people to go through my Twitter account, which is at Justin H. Gillis, G-I-L-L-I-S. And I keep my direct messages open on that account at all times. And so anybody can message me. I mean, if they're obnoxious, I'm going to block them, right? But anybody who's civil will get a civil reply. And I'm delighted to connect with people. By the time your audience is hearing this, we will have a web page up about the book. That's going to be called bigfixbook.com. That will also have ways to reach both me and Hal Harvey, my co-author. Well, thank you so much, Justin, for joining us today on Care More, Be Better. I've so enjoyed this conversation, and I know we've provided our listeners with some actionable tools and some hope, which is critical in this time. Sure. Glad to be here. All right. Thank you for coming. Now, as we close today's show, I invite you to consider how you might change your approach to our shared planet. How will you personally affect these seven practical steps? I encourage you all to pick up a copy of The Big Fix, and I will include several links with show notes so you can find it in your favorite spot. It is sure to help you get creative and get those juices flowing so that we can collectively drive more positive energy in the right direction. If you have questions for me or for Justin, I hope you'll send me a note directly to hello at caremorebebetter.com. And as Justin just asked, you can find him on Twitter at Justin H. Gillis. So please reach out to him as well. Now, all you have to do if you want to leave me a voicemail is simply go to caremorebebetter.com and click that microphone icon in the bottom right-hand corner. And you can record a message and send it on through. You can even review it before you do so. So you're sure it says exactly what you want it to say. 
Thank you listeners now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more and we can be better. We can even regenerate earth. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.